a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. Are you ready to jump in with both feet and revel in wrong think? Okay, that's what's on tap today. I've got some dandy stuff to share with you. We're going to talk a little bit today about uh, about cult-like thinking. Now, that used to be a huge insult, right? You tell somebody, well, you're acting like some kind of cultist. I mean, that was, that was a pretty uh, open-handed slap across the face, rhetorically. I found a... A letter that uh, Bratine Schaefer has written to her future grandchildren that I think is an absolute classic. I, I've got it listed in the show notes, so you can access it by going to the com. This is the show notes for November 18th, 2020. Definitely something I would ask you to consider reading and possibly sharing within your circle of influence. We'll talk a little bit about the technological game of whack-a-mole going on right now. You know, the one in which uh, you and I are the rodents and Silicon Valley is holding the mallet. Yeah, it's getting pretty tough to uh, speak the truth freely when you've got uh, tech giants doing their best to mold the, uh, the narrative out there by suppressing certain points of view. Speaking of suppressing certain points of view, people who are defenders of the lockdown mentality have uh, really <clears throat> taken a, a liking to hiding behind the skirts of science. Oh, they I mean, they shout it, you know, from the, from the rooftops. Well, I believe the science. We're going to follow the science. It's to the point where even if you say, well, you know, this is a medical expert here. Dr. Scott Atlas, for instance, has not been one who is an advocate of the lockdowns, preferring to, uh, to take a more uh, focused protection approach. And people will look at him and say, well, yeah, but <laughs> he's not an epidemiologist. If I wanted uh, you know, someone to look at my x-ray, sure, I'd talk to him. And it just illustrates this, this self-imposed mental uh, block that we put on ourselves where, where we can only listen to certain self-appointed experts. And this, in turn, has blinded us to one of the great truths of personal liberty, which is you can figure things out. You can ask questions. You can learn things on your own. In fact, one of the things I'm going to share with you in this hour is how regular people can and have been solving America's problems from the bottom up for as long as our nation has existed. The problem is... We are underestimating ourselves, and worse, we have been uh, trained to outsource our responsibilities to these so-called experts, which uh, when you combine their expertise with authority, well, let's just say it becomes a, a very convenient way to keep people under someone else's control. So that brings us back to the cultists. Now, this is going to make some people uncomfortable, and that's a good thing. So here goes. Bertine Schaefer, in a piece published today on LewRockwell.com, says, I don't even have any grandchildren yet, but if I ever do, I want them to understand what we went through in this time in history. 
and even more to understand how it is that we got got here. So she says, this is for them. And she, she tells her grandchildren to be, I first learned about cults when I was 13. That's how old her son is now. She says, I watched with fascination as the horrific events of the Jonestown mass murder and suicide were revealed to the world. She says, I paid close attention to the story, clipped all the newspaper articles about it, and imagined scenarios in which I would find a way to hide until everyone was dead or gone and save myself and my family if they were there too, had I been there. Now, she says, what didn't occur to me at the time was that had I been there, had I uprooted my life to go and join this group of people in the jungles of Guyana, had I been in the frame of mind to go along with everything they did leading up to the events of November 18, 1978, including practice runs for the mass suicide, then chances are I would have willingly stood in a circle with my friends and drunk the cyanide-laden Kool-Aid as so many others did. And she says that's what's so puzzling and so fascinating about cults. From the outside, we can't imagine why those people would have done those things. What could possibly drive otherwise normal people to act in ways that seem not only insane, but counter to their own interests, in the case of Jonestown, counter to their most fundamental instinct for self-preservation? And she asks, what could get someone to be willing to sacrifice their own life and the lives of the people they love. And then she says, I hope to provide some insight into this question as I find myself now, at the end of the year 2020, living in the midst of what I can only describe as a massive, dangerous, and self-destructive cult. So what is a cult? Terry Buford O'Shea escaped from Jonestown just a few weeks before the mass suicide and murder. This is how she defines a cult. A cult is when you aren't allowed to see your friends or family. I'm talking total isolation. Someone takes all your money and brings you to a place where there's no communication, or if there is, you aren't aren't allowed to use it. Cold D programmer Stephen Hassan created the BITE model to explain some of the key elements that cults employ to control their members. So BITE is the acronym for Behavior Control. An individual's associations, living arrangements, food, clothing, sleeping habits, finances, etc. are strictly controlled. Information control. Cult leaders deliberately withhold or distort information, lie, propagandize, and limit access to other sources of information. Thought control. Cult leaders use loaded words and language, discourage critical thinking, bar any speech critical of cult leaders or policies, and teach an us-versus-them doctrine. And finally, emotional control. Leaders manipulate their followers via fear, including the fear of losing salvation, fear of shunning, etc. Also guilt and indoctrination. Now, Bertine Schaefer says, reading both O'Shea's definition and Hassan's bite components in 2020, It's striking to her the extent to which all of these things have been inflicted upon Americans over the past eight months. By the way, this is the point where you should start feeling a little bit of uneasiness in your stomach. At least if you're like me and you're going, holy crap, she's right. This is disturbing. But she gives the following examples. Isolation and the intimate control of our activities and relationships in the form of forced social distancing, the closing of businesses and schools 
and most cruelly the isolation of the elderly and others in care homes. Taking our money, or in our case, destroying the source of income and livelihood for millions of people in this country, control of communication and information through what has now become overt censorship, with hints that some forms of communication may be shut down entirely. And then there's emotional manipulation through shaming of those who do not go along with the diktat of the day and other tactics, and an authoritarian thought control regime where critical thinking on the part of individuals is ridiculed, views that contradict those of the leaders are actively censored, and intellectual debate is replaced by us-versus-them tribal warfare. Now, she says it's this last part that gets to the heart of it. She says, to me, the essence of a cult is that it provides an external replacement, a substitute for one's own power of reasoning and moral judgment. It demands blind obedience to the substitute and punishes harshly anyone who dissents from its pronouncements. And she says, and this describes very well the mainstream culture I find myself in today. She says, I see people on online neighborhood forums bragging about wanting to turn in local businesses for, quote, breaking the rules. Rules that are arbitrary, ineffective, unconstitutional. But she says, I'm discovering that none of that matters for a great many of the people who live in my own neighborhood. It's because they've been told by someone in authority, the governor of California, the local city council, an anchor person on the television news, that they watch, that everyone must now stand six feet apart, that events must be canceled, some businesses must close, and that everyone must wear a mask when outside. And just like that, thousands of years of human social norms and everything we know about biology just flies out of the heads of millions of Americans. And they all act as if this has always been normal. They scream at and even physically attack those who don't go along with it and even force their children to isolate themselves from human contact and to wear masks that restrict their breathing. And they do it all because someone said so. We're going to come back to her commentary in just a few moments, but does that put a little shiver up your spine? Okay, maybe maybe I'm the only one. Maybe I'm the person who's out of step here, but... Uh, Bratine Schaefer's letter to her future grandchildren from inside a cult. I think she's right on the money here. And again, you can access this by going to my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. This is one of the most powerful pieces I have read this week. And I do a lot of reading. So this one really jumped out at me. This is an essay by Bertine Schaefer, published on LouRockwell.com, Letter to My Grandchildren from Inside a Cult. And she's describing how she recognized it in, in, in thinking about cult-like thinking, how cults control the people that, uh, that are within their, their influence. And realize that's us. That is what our society is like at the end of 2020. She says, I live in a world that only a year ago I would have thought was the stuff of poorly written dystopian fiction. If anyone had told me in November of 2019 
that just a year later, people would be ordered by the governor of the state I live in to close their businesses, to only leave their homes for essential activities, to stop attending church services, to stand six feet apart from other people, and eventually to wear masks on their faces when out in public, and that most people would not only go along with this willingly, but would cheer it on and even shame those who did not. She says, I would have laughed in their face, and yet here we are. Now, she says, I hope the things you've heard about this time in our history, remember, she's talking to her future grandchildren, do sound absurd to you. But she says, understand that until they actually happened right in front of me, they sounded absurd to me, too. I would never have believed that the people around me would have been gullible enough, malleable enough, or vicious enough to go along with the things that have been imposed on us and under the flimsiest of pretexts. And this is where it gets interesting because she asks, so how did we get here? She says, about the same time I learned about the Jonestown tragedy, I also learned about World War II and specifically about the Holocaust. In hindsight, she says, my government school spent a lot of time teaching us about the horrors committed by the Nazis. Disproportionately so, she later realized in the context of a world history, including for her recent history, filled with similar atrocities. But for some reason, she says, my school wanted us all to focus on this one. So she says, I came away from learning about World War II and the Holocaust with what I thought was a pretty compelling and obvious lesson. The reason these horrors occurred was that government was able to amass near total control of the people living under it. That this kind of power is tremendously dangerous to humanity. And that we must do all we can to make sure that no government ever again has that kind of power. And she says, it was many years before I learned that this was not the lesson that many of my classmates came away with. The lesson, it seems, that most Americans learned from that episode in history goes something like this. Anti-Semitism is what caused the Holocaust. Anti-Semitism is bad, just like racism is bad, and we must give our governments the power to stamp out things like racism and anti-Semitism so that we can all be safe and never again have another Holocaust. And that, she says, I think goes a long way toward explaining why we find ourselves here yet again. With governments that have just demonstrated to us that they have both the power and the desire to exert total control over our lives. Because the vast majority of Americans never learned that it, that was danger. Indeed, if they went to the schools run by the government, they were taught just the opposite. That it's free people and free markets that are the danger and that government is there to protect you from that danger. That government is a benign force, and because you can vote, it's a force you can control. She says, this schooling has much to do with the willingness of so many Americans around me to embrace the total state. It has prepared them for precisely that. In fact, with its focus on obedience to authority, following rules, giving the right answers so as to pass tests and move forward, and avoiding punishment by doing what those in authority tell you to. And it's part of a larger effort to manipulate and control what people believe is true about the world. She says, to this end, some very powerful and deep narratives have been crafted and fed to us over generations. What are those narratives? Well, primarily that freedom is dangerous, that the state is a benign entity that acts for the good of the people, or that we, the people, control it. Now, she says this narrative is deadly. 
It turns concepts of peace, cooperation, justice, compassion, and freedom upside down, telling us that free people are dangerous, but an all-powerful state is not, that voluntary transactions made in a free market constitute coercion, but literally taking people's money from them without their consent with the threat of guns and prison is not coercion. This narrative tells us that we absolutely control the same government that takes our money from us, that can close our businesses or stop us from practicing our professions if we displease it. The same government that puts people in prison for using substances it disapproves of and that unleashes police to enforce laws against crimes that have no victims, often with deadly consequences for those who commit them, who are almost never held accountable. She says, we're told that, th- that through the act of voting to select the people who hold offices in this entity, we exercise control over it, and therefore it represents our interests. But the entities that we are not compelled to do business with, the entities that cannot throw us in jail if we refuse their terms, and in fact which will go out of business if they fail to please us, those entities, we're told, are a threat to us and must be reined in by the entity that takes our money, whether we want it to or not. Bertine Schaefer says, According to this narrative, people have no inclination to cooperate or support each other in the absence of state violence. Community and society are not the products of voluntary interaction between people, of practices and standards that have evolved over centuries of such interaction, but are things that must be imposed from above by the state. In this worldview, community is equated with state force and vice versa. Without the state, we are told we would be nothing but isolated, atomistic, rugged individuals with no ability to connect with each other, no interest in supporting each other, or in cooperating for mutual benefit, but constantly at war with each other in a grim battle for survival of the fittest. Now she tells her future grandchildren, this narrative must sound absurd to you. I hope it does. But she says, remember that I live surrounded by people for whom it makes complete sense and to whom anyone who believes differently is considered a kook with fringe beliefs or maybe even a conspiracy theorist. She says, the success of this narrative in my time can be measured by the widespread failure of the people around me to recognize the institution of the state as an enemy at all, even as it lays waste to their livelihoods, the things that give their lives meaning and in many cases, their lives are the lives of their loved ones. So now what? She says, well, this brings me to my third and I think most important point. Somehow, the culture that I live in has come to be characterized by an outright disdain for independent thought. Public debate has been largely reduced to the pitting of competing authority figures against each other, and the capacity of most people to engage in reasoned arguments begins and ends with an appeal to those authorities. Only very few seem able to engage directly with information themselves, and those few are largely ignored. She says, We've arrived at a point in history where the intellectual norm is now to abandon one's own capacity for reason and to put in its place a collection of authority figures and institutions, or rather, authority itself. We have arrived at a point in history where mainstream America looks very much like a cult. And she says, it's not a cult that anyone went out and joined, nor one that went around recruiting people. 
but one that has been inflicted on us and has thrived, grown, and expanded from within. And then she asks, how is any of this helpful to you now, many years into the future, keeping in mind she's writing this to her future grandchildren? She says, I wish I knew what to say that would ensure that nothing like this ever happened again, but I don't. She says, what I can do, however, is encourage you not to make the same mistakes that brought us to where we are at the end of 2020. And when we come back the other side of this break, she has some marvelous suggestions. Maybe you'll want to recommend these to your grandkids, or better still, to yourself. We'll be back in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. I am so blown away by this essay from Brettine Schaefer. I'm sharing it across as many platforms as I possibly can. And you, my dear listener, my fellow wrong thinker, are fortunate enough to have found this particular platform, which is great. You know, if you're if you're driving along, you know, listening to the uh, podcast of my program, um, you know, I'm happy to help convey this. But I think Bertine Schaefer has done a bang up job of illustrating what it's like to wake up and realize I am in a cult, and I don't think that's just pejorative talk there to describe American society as a cult. I mentioned how earlier this week I riled the town folk, in the words of, of a friend, simply for, for disagreeing from the popular narrative. As far as I can tell, I'm seeing still notifications pop up on Facebook. There are still people working hard to try to put me in my place. Why? Because I dared question, you know, the COVID narrative. Wow. It's, it is some of the most cultish behavior I've ever seen. And that's, again, I'm, I'm not trying to say that they are stupid or evil. They don't even see, they, they don't even comprehend what they have given up or, or how their behavior is being controlled by authority, you know, beyond themselves. So what can we do to avoid making the same mistakes that brought us to where we are here at the end of 2020? Here's what Bertine Schaefer suggests. She tells her grandchildren, her future grandchildren, Do not put your trust in entities that are founded in coercion and that demand a monopoly on the use of violence. Do not ever let such entities be in charge of educating your children. She says, do whatever you can, in fact, to ensure that such entities are not able to function in the world at all. And if you ever find yourself in the midst of a cult, you might be tempted to blame the cult members for this predicament. Don't. It's not worth the effort. Focus your attention where it is most needed, on the source of the problem. And remember that that source only gets more powerful when those under it are fighting each other. And so she, she suggests, fight with everything you have against any attempts to control information or speech. And beat into the ground until it is bloody and tattered the idea that truth is something given to us by authority figures rather than something we are capable of discerning for ourselves. Oh my gosh, that line right there is pure 
gold. She tells her future grandchildren, that's all I've got. From where I'm sitting in late 2020, it seems that humanity has an infinite capacity for abject stupidity and gullibility and for a reverence for authority, no matter how deadly and destructive that authority becomes. But people can surprise you. She says we can also be quite wonderful and imaginative and even terribly strong when we need to be. We have hardwiring built into us for cooperation and caring for each other and ensuring the survival of the next generation, all of which predates any state. So she says, I have some hope for us. I don't believe that we are destined to be eternal participants in a suicidal death cult. She says, I have hope that, as has happened with previous attempts to plan humanity, humanity's own messiness will jam up the machine and it will come crashing down. And she says, when that happens, let's just do everything we can to make sure no one can ever build another one. Okay? Love, Grandma. Powerful stuff here. And again, I I know I'm geeking out. I get it. I'm Brian. Come on, just calm down. Put a cold washcloth on your head. That line, though, about the idea that truth is something given to us by authority figures, that describes what drives thinking in our society today, or I should say lack of thinking. And I just want you to know, you are more than capable of figuring things out, of asking the right questions if you don't have the answers and you don't have the necessary training in a particular area. You are smart enough to figure out how to ask the kinds of questions that can get you the answers that you need to know. It's just that there are so few people who are willing to assert themselves in this way. Be one of those people. Be one of those who has the courage to lead out. I promise there are a few things more contagious than authentic courage. And yours is needed so desperately right now. By the way, I've got another essay here that I have linked in the show notes. This is from uh, Tim Hartnett. It's on the art of defenselessness. And it's a very thoughtful piece about how we are, how we are being manipulated through the control of information. He says, don't believe the poets. A pen has never been a match for, the, for a conventional weapon, metaphorically or otherwise. Joe Pesci's casino victim was unarmed. In a pinch, who would pick a manual writing utensil against a pocket knife or the nearest blunt object? He says, the uh, only pens mightier than swords were made for James Bond by Agent Q. Now, he says, don't get me wrong. Rhetoric has been honed to do harm down through the ages. But it tends to be those in possession of, of superior firepower who scour literary output for words they find weaponized. There's absolutely nothing paranoid in being wary of all the clamor about improving on the First Amendment. He says that assault is already well underway from Silicon Valley on op-ed pages and think tanks and somber elder statesman orations. The full ends they have in mind can only be met by the means of jackbooted thugs. What they are afraid of is unlimited truth and never lies. When's the last time any of the establishment stood up for Edward Snowden? That's a fair question. In the ongoing game of cyber whack-a-mole, who are the metaphorical rodents? And he says it's way past any human capacity to keep up with the moving finish lines, flexible community standards, fictional fact checks, politically convenient site glitches, 
multiple standard cancellations, and crude ideological strong-arming that prevails. One Facebook blocking tactic, tactic rather, is a rectangular box with a padlock image on the left and this caption on the right. This content isn't available right now. When this happens, it's usually because the owner only shared it with a small group of people, changed who can see it, or it's been deleted. But as Tim Hartnett points out, when this happens, that's never what happened. The locked box is nearly always used to censor jokes that are clearly too kosher to pretend otherwise. Who goes around changing who can see it? Management is stopping anyone from seeing because it's funny, true, and they don't like it. Apparatchiks at headquarters may believe users fall for this as an unintentional tech error, but he says Facebook routinely resorts to fakery in their fight against fake news that isn't fake. Should we change that C in their name to a K? <laughs> he says the last time my page was victimized by this cloddish ruse was on November 2nd. One half of the post showed a group of people warmly embracing each other with the words, what communism says it is. The other half was an actual photo of a Soviet firing squad at work, accompanied by what it really is. Now, he says, just about everything I've seen censored using this clumsy lie has been humor at socialism's expense that was dead accurate. How do you avoid the conclusion that some of the world's richest men have ruled socialism too sacred a thing to laugh at? especially when the punchline is, without exaggeration, in 100% compliance with both community standards as well as the facts. And that's not to say that those so-called standards are drawn on any clear lines. He says, is Mark Zuckerberg a commie? Who knows? There are numerous reports that he demands private accommodations in restaurants for parties as small as one. Communist Party members in the old USSR shared the wealth with the beloved people just as generously. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Major League News providers don't find this heavy-handed abuse of communication resources newsworthy, but he asks what could possibly account for such an insidious policy in the, in the first place. Facebook has not only blocked posts, but access to their site temporarily for simply putting up stock news photos of cannibalism during Soviet times. They ironically included comrades marketing human body parts like butchers do with pork and beef in a capitalist society. The excuse offered in such cases is nudity violating supposed community standards. But he points out, no genitalia is even close to visible in these photos. What could motivate the suits of Silicon Valley to see such grisly lessons of the human race reduced to this condition unlearned? Hiding their priorities behind a pretense of Victorian sensitivity is mighty rich. In the meantime, communication advances and spyware vault to higher technological altitudes almost daily. What hasn't been invented yet, or at least remains out of the reach of the common comrade if it has, is an app for keeping pace with all of the deceptive, manipulative, and suppressive means employed by conclaves molding the messages masses can convey. All right, got to break away here for a moment. We're going to come back and we'll finish up Tim Hartnett's article. Again, if you use social media, hopefully this is striking the right nerve and you've got some lights flashing in your brain going, holy cow, this makes sense. And again, you will find it in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Feel free to share it as widely as you wish. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back. You know how I can tell it's, it's, it's a really great show? And no, I'm not patting myself on the back. I can tell that things are going extremely well when the time flies by so quick. I'm like, really? We're on the last segment of the hour. Okay, well, you know, here goes. But this is one of those days, and and it just seems like I have found such a treasure trove of information to share with you, and it's so spot on and so insightful. Yeah, forgive me if I get just a little bit geeked out by it, but uh, this is an exciting moment for me. Can I tell you why? I'm sharing with you this article from Tim Hartnett, The Art of Defenselessness. And the thing that makes this so exciting to me is because I have the privilege of speaking to you on platforms that are not subject to the approval of Senor Zuckerberg or, you know, Twitter or anybody else. It makes me happy. It makes me feel empowered. Maybe, Maybe a little bit froggy. What a time to live in. And what an opportunity. And I want you to know, I, I don't take this in, in any reckless way. I think, I really believe that, uh, you know, what I do in, in sharing the information that I share on a day-to-day basis is, is a very sacred stewardship. And I know that may sound really self-important to some, but I'm telling you, it keeps me humble in the sense that I believe I will be accountable to God for how I have conducted myself and for, for how I have tried to use my influence. That weighs heavy on my shoulders. So if you think, oh, great, Hyde's on another rant. I may be on a rant on any given day, but you need to understand that at the the heart of what I do, the reason I get up in the wee hours of the morning to do whatever it is I do is because I believe the truth matters. And I'm determined to speak the truth as best I understand it. And I am so grateful for truth seekers like yourself who somehow have sifted through all of that information, that blizzard of information that's going on right now, and have been able to find this particular platform and this particular message. Thank you for being part of my audience. Thank you for helping others find this. We will not be the biggest audience. I don't think that's ever going to be a reality. I'm not going to be a household name, and that's cool. But this is going to be the best quality audience. And it's going to be comprised of people who take seriously the things that really matter and who are seeking to use their influence as wisely as they can right where they are at any given moment. And that is a force for good that simply cannot be underestimated. Okay, sorry. I kind of, I kind of went off on a sermon. I want to come back here to Tim Hartnett's article. He says, Fortunately for the moment, if you don't mind leading a voiceless life, Powerful silencers have developed ways of making you not talk or be heard anyway without any bloodshed. And the theory justifying the suppression is that powerful sources are trustworthy while their questioners are not. Don't ask, don't ask is an official message from Silicon Valley with consequences for those who do. The court of public opinion is now no more public than grand jury proceedings. The indictments media management hands down have the effect of convictions, at least as far as institutional treatment of the findings go. Now, he says that above paragraph overstates the case, but for how long? Back in June of 2016, Google, I'm sorry, U.S. News and World Report had this to say on the subject of Google and censorship. Keep in mind, this was four and a half years ago. No one company 
which is accountable to its shareholders but not to the general public, should have the power to instantly put another company out of business or block access to any website in the world, end quote. And Tim Hartnett asks, where is any page to be found tracking these developments? How many sites with brilliant insights into reality have been lost? How many people have switched careers or lost substantial sums of income through the despotic powers of tech giants? And more importantly, what were the actual transgressions that invoked Silicon's wrath? He says, currently, there is, is there any way of determining if a site has been kneecapped for stepping on the toes of fat cats with friends in high places, crossing China, publicizing verboten but accurate facts and statistics, riling the CIA, FBI, or other alphabet soup entities, drawing attention to the clandestine agendas of powerful economic forces, exposing lobbying accomplishments with the public, might not be keen on or anything or anything some small cautery with poll might not like brought to light. He says, looking hard, we can already see numerous instances of such things. Tech giants and major media rarely strive to improve the resolution of the majority that's barely looking at all, while they never stop warning of dangers that perpetually remain on the horizon. Tim Hartnett says, Tech prowess makes some voices loud enough to rouse dozers in the back rows of the congregation. Those electronic windbags made no bones, spreading outright deception about the ideological sources of violence this summer. They have a proven track record of airbrushing Soviet and People's Republic atrocities while warning hyperbolically of mythical villains drooling under the bed. After developments like COVID and recent civil unrest, he says communication capability is dearer than ever. Who can tell us when or if it becomes a matter of life or death, or if it hasn't already? Dang. That is so spot on. All right, I got to move on. I got two other quick ones here to come to. Um, You hear a lot of talk about uh, the people who defend the lockdown mentality. Talking about science. Science demands that uh, this be observed, and I believe the science. I think Biden even has made a pretty big deal out of, well, when I become president, we're going to embrace the science as if somehow science is entirely lacking from what President Trump has has been doing. Well, there's a great article from the uh, American Institute for Economic Research. This is from Misha Gartz. And this is titled, Does Science Really Demand That Bars and Restaurants Close? Now, she's got some great material here. I can't share the whole thing, but I want to give you a couple of quick excerpts. There's a Wall Street Journal article titled, It's Now Up to Governors to Slow the Spread. That article, by the way, was written by board members of pharmaceutical companies Pfizer and Illumina, Johnson & Johnson, and Cigna. And it encourages states and governors to band together and implement restrictions focused on known sources of spread, such as bars and nightclubs. Now, Drs. Gottlieb and McClellan make this plea in a very reasonable way. After all... The science tells us that COVID spreads in confined spaces. Basing policy advice on the science would be the sensible thing to do. The spaces, the bars and restaurants and cafes we enjoy must be closed for our protection. 
But Misha Gartz points out there's just one small problem. The science isn't really there. In fact, the only evidence we have is circumstantial. All we have are data simulations, in other words, predictions. Case studies followed up with contact tracing, and that's it. Given that COVID has become a worldwide attention magnet for eight months, she says one would expect a lot more substantial evidence than is available. Now, if you're recommending that an entire industry be slowly strangled to death in the name of public health, all she's saying is you should probably have some science behind you. She points out how media coverage continues to use science to remind us that restaurants, gyms, and hotels are high risk or a high COVID risk, rather, and potential super spreader events. Last month, articles loved to cite a Stanford computer model which uses cell phone data to simulate COVID spread in 10 major U.S. cities and map the hourly movements of 98 million people from neighborhoods to points of interest, such as restaurants and religious establishments. Now, she says, while tracking mobile phones Big Brother style gives an indication of density, the study's heavily limited by data used in one-hour blocks. Someone could spend five minutes in a grocery store to buy milk, and 50 minutes later, someone else can also spend five minutes in the store to buy bread. Under that model, both are characterized as in the store for an hour, and suddenly the people in the store during that hour and the risk to everyone has gone up by two. As Jeffrey Tucker wrote, even the CDC has been misappropriated in support of a war on restaurants and bars. The study restricted analysis of their sample of positive cases to case patients with close contact to anyone with confirmed COVID-19. So unless COVID was caught in domestic settings, these case patients would perceive themselves as encountering it in in a social setting like a bar or a restaurant, thereby making them more likely to report having visited a bar or restaurant. Her point is simply this, until we start questioning the science or demand that our policymakers stop hiding behind the boastful yet ambiguous label of science and adequately identify precisely what evidence they're following, we are going to be sucked into an endless spiral of cyclical shutdowns. After all, for all we know, the science may be deeply flawed. Worse, it may not even exist. And it's okay to question these things. Again, this is from Misha Gartz. You'll find it in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Take a look and share it widely. This is The Brian Hyde Show.